Good morning, guys. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, I'm glad Amber said that on the video about God using our weakness. Because uh, that's what I feel. That's what I am. Well, God is good. Um, and plus, my stature is kind of short, so, right? <laughs> I already have some down things for me. But um, I'm going to do something a little different this morning. Um, I, I want to try to bring this particular passage to you, uh, and, and we're going to go through three things. Um, you may have heard this from me before, but the way I study the Word um, is something I would like to encourage you in, but it's observation, interpretation, and application. So when you're at home studying, this is your own time, that's a good way for you to think about it. What, what do I see in the text? When I'm reading, what do I see? What does it say? What do I observe? So like, I actually see who are the characters involved, what's happening? And then interpretation, what does it mean? What does it mean? Like, this is what it says, what does it mean? A lot of times we like to jump straight to application, right? Without thinking through that first. So I'm going to attempt to do this. Uh, you'll probably find that I'm going to mess up, but I'm going to attempt to not give you any application up front, okay? Uh, here's what I hope would happen, that as we're doing the observation and interpretation stage of this, let God lead you in application. Would you do that? Did you know that God says about his word that it's living, it's active? Yeah? You guys familiar with that? It's Hebrews chapter 4. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So I bet we can come in on a Sunday morning and just share the word of God with you. It's good to expound. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Old Testament is loaded with that. Uh, the word was shared, people expounded. But there's so much power in the word of God by itself being spoken. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So I'm trusting that this morning, this particular passage on belief, that God's going to be stirring you guys. And I uh, was with the prayer team this morning, and I was reminded about something like, we're all in different stages in here this morning. We all came in here with different things on our plate. We all believe in different ways. And I'm not saying like we, we believe something different doctrinally about who Jesus is, but like our belief is in different places this morning. We may be in a place of seeking. That may be where our faith is at. We may be in a place that God's calling us to trust, right? Or we may be in a season of maturity. Like, what is God bringing us through to bring us to a place of trusting and building that trust in us? Uh, so we're going to read this. Help me observe, right? And then we'll talk about some interpretation. Uh, so uh, and I, I, I'm going to do that a lot, too. Um, on the screen this morning, you'll probably just see the text, which I'm okay with. I'm excited. Kristen knows I'm not a big slide guy. I'd like to get you some slides. That'd be awesome. Um, but the word is cool enough for me. <laughs> and uh, you may see some other things added in. But uh, yeah, so if we can keep just that passage up there, Philip, that would, that would be great. Um, or if you have your Bible, like read along with it. So we're going to kick back to John 4, 43 is where we're going to start. It says, after the two days, he departed for Galilee. This is Jesus, right? That's the he is speaking about. He departed for Galilee. Where did he just leave from? Well, if you were here last week, you would remember that Jesus just left Samaria, 
This is where he spent two days with the Samaritan people uh, where the woman at the well was saved, and she ran to tell everybody, right? That's, uh, that's where he's coming from. Um, pretty cool because like, that's like one of those high mountain times. It's like the whole place erupts and gets saved. It's like a high mountain that you don't want, want to ever leave from. You're like, I want to stay here. Samaria, Samaria is a good place, man. Everybody believes, right? They're just running. And then what happens? Uh, John throws in this weird verse, parenthetical, like, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. For Jesus himself had testified a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Uh, there's a couple of times, we don't see it here, this is already taking place, and we can see this from some of the other Gospels, is uh, Jesus, uh, especially in Nazareth, where he was from, uh, he would be speaking in the synagogue, and uh, people would be amazed, they would be astounded. They're like, man, listen to what Jesus is saying. He's saying some crazy things, and he has authority like no one else has. And th- they were all in wonder and awe. They're like, man, listen to that. And then, immediately they would go, but wait a minute, I know this guy. This is, this is Joseph's son. Sorry, I'm getting super dry up here. This is Joseph's son. We know his mom and dad. We know his brothers and his sisters. Um, where does this guy get his wisdom from? So immediately, it, it was a high. It was like, man, we're astounded at what he's saying, but wait a minute, we know him. That's Jesus. Like, we, we saw him grow up. We know his, his dad's a carpenter. Like, we, we know this. And so uh, they didn't honor him. Matter of fact, because of that, they took offense at him because they knew who he was on a familiar level. They knew about Jesus, and they were offended at him. And then something crazy happens. Like, I don't know if you knew this about Jesus, but Jesus, sometimes when he has a crowd following him, <laughs> well, I, I put my foot in my mouth a lot, and sometimes like, I need to know when to like, hush, right? And sometimes, like, Jesus does that in a crowd of people that are following him, and then Jesus will all of a sudden say something, and you're like, ah, Jesus, why'd you say that? Because now people are going to turn away from you. And that happened a lot. That happened in the synagogue in Nazareth one time when Jesus was speaking. Everybody was astounded. They're like, man, this is great. You're what Jesus said. Everybody was excited. And then he started knocking on their faith. He was saying, did you know that Jesus went outside of Israel and he healed? because of the unbelief that was within Israel. And the people were so upset with Jesus, they wanted to take him out to the end of the city, to a cliff. You know what they wanted to do? They wanted to throw him off. So like when Jesus says, or John says this to us here, prophet that doesn't have any honor in his own hometown, like that's it, man. Like every time Jesus came through Nazareth, like we know Jesus, like there's no honor. I'm offended at him. And it says because of that, he didn't do many mighty works because of their unbelief. But the amazing thing is, like, Jesus doesn't give up. It says that. It says, like, uh, after the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, it's like he went anyway. And by the way, if you didn't know this uh, geographically, um, you have Judea and then Samaria and then Galilee. Uh, that's kind of Judea being on the south, Samaria being in the middle. 
uh, if you remember from last week, last two weeks, uh, Jesus was going to go from Judea to Galilee, and it says he had to pass through Samaria. Most of the time they went around because they didn't have anything to do with each other, Jews and Samaritans, but Jesus says, I've got to go. Um, <clears throat> and so, like, why would Jesus go back to Galilee? Why would he go back to his home place if there was no honor there? Why not stay away? He didn't do mighty works there. So you would think his hometown folks, they probably wouldn't be too excited to see him, right? But did you guys notice this? This is observation, interpretation here. Look at verse uh, 45. <clears throat> I brought my smallest text Bible. <clears throat> so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. If anything, I, would, I wouldn't think that his hometown folks would be welcoming him. They wouldn't be astounded, but yet they were. And then why? Why were they astounded? Why were they welcoming? Because of what? You guys can look at that. Why did they welcome Jesus? Having seen what? Somebody yell it out. Don't be scared. All that he had done. What was it that Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover feast? If you remember when we were studying, at least in John together, uh, one thing that he did was uh, he, he came and uh, tore up the place in the temple. Uh, there were money changers, there were traders inside the temple, and Jesus was like, no, not my father's house, and like he overturns the tables. But that's not the only thing that he saw. Um, matter of fact, uh, it says, uh, <clears throat> when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So it wasn't specific about the signs. Not only did Jesus like throw over tables that weren't supposed to be happening inside the temple, but Jesus did other signs. And these guys from Galilee were down in Jerusalem because they went there for the Passover feast. That's what the Jewish, the Israelites did. They went to Jerusalem during this time, the Passover feast. And they saw what Jesus did in Jerusalem. And then they welcomed him back home. It's the weirdest thing to me. I was like, what does that even mean? The same people who are offended at him are now welcoming him? And I don't know. I, I, I had to think about it for a little bit, little bit. I was like, man, it was almost like these, well, two things. Their welcome could be like non-legit, right? It could just be a fake welcome. welcome. Or like I was thinking through a, a welcoming unbelief where you can believe Jesus about some things, but you don't really receive him fully. And I think that's what happened to them. <clears throat> An unwelcoming belief. <clears throat> but I believe Jesus had to get them out of their normal scenario. Do you imagine them still being camped out in Galilee? And like, because no one else believed, like they weren't going to believe either because there was no honor among them. They weren't going to honor, but yet they get outside of their norm. Outside of their norm, I hope they hit home with somebody. Like I said, I'm going to try not to apply this here, but they had to get outside of their norm to see Jesus work, to be away from people, to be away from their circles, to see Jesus perform signs that weren't normally performed at home to then believe in him and welcome him. 
So then what does he do? I, it doesn't say, like, where he showed up first. It does say he, he goes to uh, Cana, verse 46, but it, it doesn't say where he went first in Galilee. I'm not sure what that pathway is. Um, but I can say that Cana is close to Nazareth. Um, Capernaum, which we're going to see, it's much closer to the Sea of Galilee. But it says, so he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he made the water wine. And here's another cool thing that I observed. Unwanted affliction sometimes puts us in a place of belief. Well, I should say very often. Unwanted affliction. How many of you guys like to be afflicted? How many of you like trials and hardship? Right? Anybody? <clears throat> I love hardships. Would anybody say that? Like, I just love it. Gotta have it. I don't think anybody would say that, right? Or if you said it, I'd be like, we gotta talk, man. I wanna know your secret. <clears throat> Unwanted affliction brings about belief. So check out this guy. At Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So this man was in a position, a need, right? And I wonder what he knew about Jesus, because he was in Capernaum, the... Miracle at Cana about him turning water into wine. His disciples were there. Uh, I should say this to you too. Um, it says, after the miracle of Jesus making uh, water into wine, it says, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and stayed there for a few days. So when that took place, uh, water was made wine, they left Cana and they went to Capernaum. And I just wonder, do they show up in Capernaum those few days and they don't say anything about what just happened at the wedding? Are they like, Shh, don't say anything, man. I know it's super cool, but don't say anything about the water being made wine. Or was it the other way around? They're like, dude, we can't. Is anybody going to talk about the elephant in the room? Like, Jesus just made water into wine for a whole wedding feast. And everybody's talking about it. I'd imagine like Cana erupted, but like now... The disciples, his mom, Jesus, they're showing up in Capernaum, and they're still talking about it, right? So somehow, some way, this guy in Capernaum, he learned about Jesus. There were reports about Jesus going all over, and this guy at least knew there was something about this man, Jesus, that was important enough for him to leave Capernaum, which I think uh, the mileage is kind of different, but uh, I think I read anywhere from like 15 to 25. I think it hits more about 17 miles from Cana to Capernaum. But what would cause a guy to leave his sick son at the point of death to travel 17 miles, not by Uber, by foot? Maybe he had a horse. I don't know. It doesn't say. But he traveled 17 miles to go see Jesus. So he must have thought Jesus was someone special who could do something great, a.k.a. heal his son, right? That's why he left. Now, here's the thing. It says that this guy was an official I don't know exactly what that means, except what I've read is he was some type of royal official who might have been in connection with King Herod, uh, who was ruling over that province. Um, if, if that's the case, man, this guy has some royal status. 
Now, here's the deal. Would this guy have ever left to go seek Jesus had this affliction not came up? It's pretty huge. What would cause you to leave, seven, you know, leave your sick son who's on the point of death to go 17 miles to seek for help from Jesus? You must have known he was something special. Your need must have been great. Unwanted affliction can bring you to the point of belief. And that's, that was the case with this guy. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So at the very least, this guy believed that Jesus could heal his son, right? So he had some type of faith. Yeah? See, I already want to jump in and like go straight to application. I'm like, so we... But I'm going to try to hold off for a second. You just stew on it, right? This guy has some type of faith to at the very least believe that Jesus could heal his son. And so he goes and he asked Jesus this. And Jesus said to him, this is verse 48. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Uh, Greek here. That word you, it's plural. And I do realize that it says in verse 48, so Jesus said to him, Jesus is speaking to him, but it's a plural you. So Jesus is not just speaking to this man, but he's speaking to whoever is with him. So how do we gather like, or who are the folks that are standing with this guy? Well, remember, he traveled from Capernaum to Cana. I don't know if it's talking about the Galileans that welcomed him. I would say so. It's got to be the Galileans that are are gathered around this man while they're having this conversation and they're welcoming Jesus and this guy comes up and then Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now wrestle with this because I think immediately it kind of sounds like a, I don't know if criticism is the right word, but it's like, man, unless you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. I think it's a both and. I think it's, yeah, like, you, you have to keep seeing these signs and wonders before you believe. Like, there's that part of it. He's like, man, that's, people keep asking for signs. But the other part of that is like, yeah, it's, it's a good thing to see signs. That Those signs are meant for you to see and believe. So it's a both and. Um, Justin's mentioned this quite a few times, and I, and, and I hope as we're walking through John, like, we never leave the thesis of this book. Uh, do you have that from John 20? <clears throat> so John 20, 30 through 31, uh, super important. Um, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Verse 31, it says, these are written. What's, what is that referring to? Observation, interpretation. What is that? What's it referring to? These are written. Signs, right? These are written. Like, signs are important. He's like, Jesus did a lot of other things that weren't written here, but these that were written, 
They were written on purpose. They were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So signs are important. So while I read so much that said, man, like over and over, like Jesus spoke to people and said, why do you keep asking for a sign? Oh, you have a little faith. Like, that's true. You've seen Jesus. Believe. But then you keep asking for more. But then again, signs are important. Like, John said it right here. These are written. Like, signs, signs leave, lead a person to a place of belief. Right? So just think about that way in uh, John 4, uh, 48. Because signs... They validate the divinity of Christ, and they also bring us to a place of faith, belief. So signs validate the divinity of Christ. It's going to happen all throughout John, um, but it also is used as an opportunity to believe. Which, by the way, uh, I think... At least a few of the things that you're going to see through the rest of the book. This is a spoiler alert in a good way. Um, Jesus is about to uh, make someone who has been blind from birth see. So, like, if, if we've come to look at John for the very first time, or the Bible for the very first time, and we're coming this, to this with fresh eyes, I think being over-familiar with something, like, we miss out on the awe because a miracle is about to take place. We're going to see that. Well, we read it in John 4. But like Jesus is about to take someone who has been blind from birth and give him sight. Jesus is about to raise a man from the dead. And like these were written so that someone may believe that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, the promised one, the Holy One of God, the Son of God, and that they may believe and have life in his name. So signs are good. I'm trying to hit both sides of this thing that I was talking about, like signs are good, but also people are asking for too many signs. Uh, you remember Thomas? Uh, he's been dubbed Doubting Thomas. Poor guy. It's like, it should be like doubting all of us. Um, <clears throat> but Doubting Thomas, remember what happened after the resurrection? Like the other disciples saw Jesus alive, and they were like, hey, man, we saw him alive. And he was like, no. Nah. So, of course, it was a lot worse. He was like, no. I'm not going to believe it. Unless I see the marks in his hands, unless I put my fingers there, put my fingers in his side, I'm not going to believe. And of course, Jesus shows up and he goes like, hey, Thomas, come put your finger right here. Put your finger in my side. You know what Jesus told him at that point? Jesus met him where he was at, by the way. He met him where he was at in his belief. And he said, hey, man, don't disbelieve, but believe. I suppose because he didn't believe, maybe Jesus could have not shown up at all. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus met him in a place of disbelief, and he said, hey, man, don't disbelieve, but believe. A little bit further down, after these other miracles take place in the book of John, um, I think it's, I think we have that one, Philip John twelve thirty seven. I could be lying. Nope. <clears throat> Though he had done so many signs before them, they still didn't what? 
believe. Though he'd done so many signs, signs don't guarantee that someone believes. Hearing Jesus speak doesn't guarantee that somebody believes. The other side of that is, you remember what just happened in Samaria before Jesus left? Sometimes you don't need signs at all. The Samaritan woman just heard Jesus speak, just his word. She believed. And then remember, she went back to her town, and she was like, hey, man, I got to tell you, this might be the Christ. He's told me everything I've ever done. And like they believed just based on what she said. And then they heard Jesus speak, and they said, you know what? It's no longer because of what you said that we believe. We've heard Jesus for ourselves, and now we believe. So you can see, like, there's, there's a lot of different places where belief and faith lie. But for this guy, this official, like, he was at a place of a seeking faith, right? What does he move into? Um, Jesus said, verse 48, uh, Jesus said to him, unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. This guy's on it, right? <laughs> I'm not leaving unless you come with me and heal my son. My son's about to die, right? So again, this guy, at the very least, believes that Jesus can heal his son. You know what dawns on me when I read this, though? This guy thinks that Jesus has to be with him, right? He believes Jesus can heal, but he believes that Jesus has to come with him. Like, there's something about the presence of Jesus coming down to Capernaum for his son to be healed, do you guys notice that? <clears throat> oh, yeah, another thing. Uh, he obviously didn't believe that Jesus could raise somebody from the dead, right? Jesus, come heal my son. He's about to die. I believe you can heal him. I don't quite know yet that you can raise people from the dead. I don't have a full picture of who you are. I've heard some things. I believe some things. But right now, that's not one of them. I, I don't know you can raise my child from the dead. Come. You know what? Jesus doesn't turn him away. Jesus, actually, Jesus doesn't come with him in this instance. But um, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Or go, your son lives. That's all he told him to do was Go. And amazingly, it says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So no longer does he just believe that Jesus has to be with him, has to be present, but this guy now believes the word that Jesus just spoke, right? The man believed the word and he went on his way. He's going back to Capernaum. Now, there's some other stories. Um, I don't think it's in John. Um, it's a little bit different. The way that Jesus deals with us on an individual basis, like the way he calls us. There's a story about um, a guy named Jairus. He was a ruler of the synagogue. His daughter was sick, and he sent, uh, no, oh yeah, he sent, uh, I'm mixing up stories here. I want to tell you too, let me get it right. Jairus went to Jesus, and he says, hey, my daughter is dying. I want you to come heal my daughter. Very similar, right? I want you to come. And Jesus actually went with him. And then on, a, on the way, uh, Jesus got stopped by a woman in the street. He actually healed her on his way, this woman in the street who was dealing with uh, infirmity for about 12 years. 
But then it says, uh, <clears throat> well, let me kick it over to, I mean, I'm mixing these stories up. Let me look at this before I start blaspheming and giving you something heretical here. <clears throat> um, okay. Okay, this is it. I wanted to make sure my stories were getting mixed up. So while he, he just healed this lady in the street, and he was on the way to Jairus' house, Jairus' servants come up to Jesus or to Jairus, and they're like, hey, um, your daughter died. Don't bother the, the master anymore. Don't, don't bother the teacher. Like, it's done. What a knock. So there's still people who didn't believe that Jesus could raise somebody from the dead. They believe that Jesus could heal, but they're like, hey, man, your daughter died. Like, don't, don't bother the teacher anymore. Like, it's done, man. Like, we can go back. Just let them go. We'll go. And Jesus looked at him. He said, hey, don't fear. Only believe. I love that Jesus met this guy where he was at. Don't fear. Only believe. And so, like, they end up going, and Jesus raises this little girl from the dead. Woohoo! Man, it's awesome. There's another story of a centurion, so not Jewish, but it's a centurion guy who sent some servants to Jesus because the centurion had a servant at home that he, he really valued, um, he loved, and this guy was sick. He was pretty bad off. So he sends these servants to Jesus, and you know what these guys start doing up front? They're like, hey, Jesus, uh, this particular gentleman, he needs you to come and heal uh, his servant because he loves him a lot. And by the way, you should do this for the centurion because, uh, man, he loves our nation and uh, he's a good guy and he built the synagogue and, like, you should come help him out. <laughs> it's a good way to motivate Jesus, right? It's like build up the centurion. Like, the centurion is pretty awesome, Jesus. Like, you should do this for him. Now, Jesus goes, amazingly, but you know what? He didn't go because these people were talking about how good the centurion was. Because on his way... The centurion hears that Jesus is coming, and Jesus then, or uh, the centurion hears that Jesus is coming, and the centurion sends out his friends at this point. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, I didn't know you were going to come to my house. <laughs> I don't know what these guys told you. I'm not worthy to have you come to my house. Um, that's why I didn't come to you. I didn't even come to you because I didn't think I was worthy enough. And then he was like, Jesus, I'm a man of authority. I tell people under me to just go and do this and do that, and they do it. So Jesus, just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus looked at him in the crowd, and he's like, man, there's no faith like this in Israel, like this centurion right here. This man gets it. All I have to do is speak and say a word. <clears throat> so, like, Jesus meets people in different places, Right? And all these signs validate his divinity. And these signs are meant to be used to point people to a belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. This is back in John 4. Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. 
And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. Why did he ask him that? Just curious, man. Why did he ask the servants? He was like, he already believed, right? This says that he believed the word that Jesus spoke. So like he's going home to expect to find his son well. I'd almost bet that the servants, they realized that uh, the guy was going to see Jesus. They knew he was going to see Jesus, right? Because he left his sick son at home. But I wonder when this kid started to recover, if they knew that that was the moment Jesus spoke a word and that he was healed. What an encounter of the dad coming back home, ready to hear this good news, and like they meet him on the way. He didn't even, doesn't even make it all the way home. And he asked him, like, wait a minute. So I don't think he asked this question because he, it was a disbelief, like it was just a further confirmation. I, I think there was something about a maturity there, about saying, hey, what hour did that happen? It was the exact same time that Jesus said, your son will live. The kids started getting better. And here's how you know that faith is genuine when your faith goes beyond yourself. It says, verse 30, uh, 53, the father knew, I'm sorry, yeah, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. This guy's life was changed because it says, and he himself believed in his whole household. I'm like, man, what is going on with this belief here? <laughs> I'm like, he believed enough to go see Jesus 17 miles away from home. Like, he believed something, right? Was that saving faith? He had faith to go seek him, and then after Jesus said, your son's going to be healed, he believed the word of Jesus, and now we come to a point where he says he b believes again. It's like, and he himself believed. It's just a confirmation and a transformation that just took place because now not only is this guy saved, is this guy believing, but now it says his whole household believes. Transform belief makes a transform life. A transform life transforms the things and the people around you. It certainly did for this guy. <clears throat> There's a lot more in this, and I realize, I don't know if I talk longer than I think I talk, but uh, <clears throat> I want to move into some application. But I hope the Lord's already doing something in you. The... The Lord cares that every single person in this room this morning believes that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So I don't know where you're at in that. I don't know where you are in your belief. If you're like this official in these different stages... You're like, man, I uh, believe some things about Jesus, but I don't know that I fully receive him. Man, he's calling you to receive him. Okay, I'm going to read some of this application stuff so I don't <clears throat> miss it here. 
Um, Sean, I'll put you on the spot. Can you come join me when you get a sec? No, no rush. Um, application of this, a welcoming unbelief accepts some things about Jesus but refuses to fully receive him. Where are you in your belief or your unbelief? Where are you at? Is your belief simply the welcoming kind that accepts some things about Jesus, even if they aren't true? Did you know it was possible to believe things about Jesus that aren't true? There were people saying things about Jesus that weren't true while Jesus was actually doing his ministry. You know what some people would call Jesus? They would call him, uh, or at least when he cast out demons, they said he's doing that by the power of the devil, Beelzebub, and they would call him a drunkard and a glutton. And so, like, people would say things about Jesus that weren't true. <clears throat> Some would be amazed at what they heard Jesus say, what they saw Jesus do, but then turn and be offended at him by their misunderstanding of who he was. Could it be that you have walked in here believing things about Jesus that just might not be true? Are you welcoming the idea that Jesus has said some good things and done some good things but remain in unbelief? Because my hope and prayer is that he is speaking to every single one of us personally this morning. Jesus meets us where we're at because he loves us. Oftentimes, we too may need an opportunity, a divine appointment, to see and hear Jesus outside of our daily routine. When you're just going through the motions, you're going through life, and it's the same thing day in and day out, and you're never in a position to hear Jesus. Could it be that you have walked in here believing things about Jesus? Could it be that Jesus provided a moment for you to catch a glimpse of who he is and what he has done apart from the norm where you have found yourself for so long? Can you now say, I am hearing what you're saying, Jesus, and I am seeing what you have done, I welcome you. I believe. Addressing faith, uh, Charles Spurgeon says this, as a matter of unpromised sovereign grace, he may even do exceeding abundantly above what you ask or even think. Therefore, I would treat your faith like a little babe. I would nurse it until it can stand alone and hold out my finger to help it till its tottering steps become firm. We will not blame the babe because it cannot run or leap, but we will cherish it and urge it to greater strength, to which strength it will come in due time. Lord Jesus Christ deserves the largest faith from each one of us. Grieve him not by suspicions of his ability. Give him what faith you have and ask for more. Secondly, unwanted affliction can turn into a belief that moves. Again, I know no one desires affliction in here. Do you know the, uh, there's a psalmist? I can't remember the particular verse. I know it's in Psalm 119. Uh, but it says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Are you telling me affliction is good? Speaking on the benefit of affliction, there's a gentleman named J.C. Ryle. He said this, health is a great blessing, but sanctified disease is a greater. Prosperity and worldly comfort are what all naturally desire, but losses and crosses are far better for us if they lead us to Christ. 
James said, count on all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of different kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Charles Spurgeon again on the trial of this man in this passage. In his response, he said, uh, <clears throat> had he been without trial, he might have lived forgetful of his God and Savior. But sorrow came to his house, and it was God's angel in disguise. It may be, dear friend, that you are in trouble this morning. And if so, I pray that affliction may be the black horse upon which mercy shall ride to your door. It is a sad, sad thing with some men that the better the Lord deals with them in providence, the worse return they make. On the other hand, there are hearts that turn to the Lord when he smites them. When they drift into deep waters, when they scarcely find bread to eat, when sickness attacks their bodies, and especially when their children are smitten, they begin to think of God and better things. Blessed is the discipline of the great father in such a case. It is well for the troubled if their tribulation bruises their heart to repentance. If repentance leads them to seek and find pardon. So what circumstances have led you to seek God out? What sorrows has led you to come find Jesus? What is it that you've heard about Jesus that has intrigued you to come? And the signs that you, by the way, um, I don't want to speak something false here, just uh, trying to wrestle with this myself, but... Um, I hope you get what I'm saying. Uh, how many of you in this room have physically seen Jesus with your own eyes raise a person from the dead? Let me, let me uh, I want to be careful how, how I say this. We do see Jesus through others, but the resurrected Christ, have you seen him yet? Remember what? Jesus told Thomas, he said, hey, uh, blessed are those who believe and haven't seen. So, like, how is it possible? Like, how are we supposed to see the signs that Jesus did in John 20? How are we supposed to see the signs and believe? Well, we, we see those through the witnesses from other people that have, that have shared that, right? John being one of those. John said, I wrote these things so that you may believe. Now, we do see, we still see signs now today, but I want you to know, like, do those signs validate who Jesus is? Do those signs that you've seen point us to a belief in Christ? Or are you saying, I, st I still have to see more? I still want to see more. Like, what, what else can Jesus do for me? We make it conclude that Jesus is speaking to us through this conversation with this official. I remember, uh, at least for me growing up, I remember hearing about Jesus, coming to believe that he was a real person, even coming to believe that he performed miracles. Like, I mean, I came to a place I believed that. <clears throat> but then there was a time that I came to believe that he was the Lord and he was my Savior. There was a wrestle in my own life about these stages of belief where I was at, where you come to believe that Jesus is a real person. He really did these miracles. He really did rise from the dead. 
But he's calling you this morning to believe fully, to receive him fully, to place your faith, your life in his hands. Not to just know him from a distance. Not to just know some things about him are true. He wants to be Lord of your life. If a person tries to save his life for himself, Jesus said he loses it. He said if someone loses their life for my sake, he will find it. I used to think that was the other way around. I was like, man, if I, can't, if I come to God, if I come to Christ, I'm, I'm going to lose it. Like, what a killjoy. And then I realized, like, no, there is no life outside of Jesus. Remember this too, guys. Like, I wonder if there's a, well, there's a purpose for this. But Hebrews chapter 12, it says that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. It's like he starts it. Now, why this guy, this official, heard some reports in Capernaum and it moved him enough to go see Jesus? I mean, I have to believe providentially, like, Jesus did some things to stir that guy's heart, guy's heart to go. It's like Jesus kicks, starts that in us. He's the author of our faith. He's the finisher of our faith. He's the perfecter of our faith. I know where you are this morning, but I'm praying that you turn to Jesus with what faith you have believe um, genuine belief goes beyond yourself remember this guy's whole household was saved it's like his whole household believe that that's probably his own family but also the servants too man this guy's life was transformed his belief was transformed his life was transformed and then everything around him's now being transformed how do we saturate this valley with the good news of Jesus he does that through a transformed life, by transformed belief in him, followers of Jesus who go and saturate the valley. <clears throat> so both encounters, the Samaritan woman and the official of Capernaum, lead to a broader belief. Many believe because of the Samaritan woman and the official's household believed as a result of his belief. Is there evidence of a belief that goes beyond yourself? Is your faith in Jesus invading the spaces around you? Your thoughts, your pursuits, your home, your neighbors, your job, your community, your relationships. And what's greater? Maybe you are on the receiving end of seeing someone else's life changed by their faith in Jesus. Maybe you're that household portion of that verse. You're being brought to Jesus because someone else's life has been changed as a result of meeting Jesus. That might be you this morning. You might be here this morning because someone else's life was changed. You just happen to show up. Guess what? God has great plans for you. He loves you. He desires for you to know him. What will you do with this? Will you recognize the life-giving presence of Jesus and turn to hear Jesus for yourself? I just want to know, <laughs> the Lord speak to any of you guys this morning. Is the Lord stirring some hearts? Is he moving you to a place of faith? Is he moving you to a place of response? 
We don't have to walk away today without responding, putting things off. Today is the day of salvation. Okay? We're going to move into a time of response. And there's going to be some space for you to reflect. We do this on purpose. We don't just want to go through the motions. We do this on purpose. We create these pauses where normally in our busy, busy lives, we don't have pauses to reflect, to react, to respond. So there are two things that Jesus commanded us to participate in, which the Christian, Christian church has regularly practiced for over 2,000 years, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is the outward symbol of an inward heart change, going public with your faith and declaring with the local church that you are indeed a part of God's family. We celebrate this a few times a year, and when we do, as a church, are reminded of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. As a new follower goes under the water and is raised again to newness of life. Then after baptism, or after being baptized into the family of God, Christians regularly participate in the Lord's Supper, or what we call communion. As an ongoing sign of continued commitment to following Jesus together. It's like a regular renewal of the baptism commitment. And we do this each and every week as we gather. The Lord's Supper is for members of our church and for guests who are born-again believers and followers of Jesus Christ. As we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, we remember and we celebrate three realities. One, Christ died. We remember together what Christ has done for us We proclaim his death until he comes. We remember that Christ is risen. We remember together what God is now doing for us by his Holy Spirit. And we remember that Christ is coming again. Hallelujah. Christ is coming again. We remember or proclaim together what God has promised to do. He is returning for his bride, the church. I don't know about you, especially this week, man, that's something that I've been celebrating in my own heart, just being reminded of the resurrection. Like, man, this is not all there is. Like, Jesus is with us, but, like, we're looking forward to a time where we're going to see him face to face. There's going to be no more pain, no more suffering, no more dying, no more sin. We look forward to that resurrection hope. So in partaking this together, that's a reminder that we get to think about. The Lord's Supper consists of two elements, the bread and the cup. As we take it together, we reflect on these words from 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 25. It says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. (laughs) 